Get ready to dive into the world of revenue marketing with the Let's Talk Revenue Marketing podcast brought to you by Revenue Marketing Alliance. Today, our host Eve Chen is joined by Ryan Bo, a product advisor at Locker and affiliate marketing faculty at Anderson College of Business and Computing at Regis University. In this episode, they talk about the implications and ethics of generative AI, machine-generated emails, and the advantages and disadvantages of machine-generated content. Before we dive in, we want to provide a quick trigger warning. Today's episode briefly touches upon suicide and, in more detail, the manipulative effects of AI. If you feel this content may be distressing, we encourage you to prioritise your well-being and consider skipping this episode. For those still tuning in, let's get started. Well, welcome to Let's Talk Revenue Marketing. I'm your host, Eve Chen, and today we're going to talk about the hottest topic in the market at the moment, artificial intelligence. So we already know that artificial intelligence, AI, is a fast-growing technology with a wide range of applications. In fact, that there is a 2021 report by the Global AI Software concluded that AI market is predicted to grow 54% year-on-year. So there's absolutely no pro- pro- uh, pro- surprise that AI also creep up to the B2B marketing world. And uh, so this uh, episode, I'm very, very pleased to invite Ryan Bo um, to our conversation on this very, very hot topic. And Ryan, he first became familiar with AI in marketing when he was working as a head of activation and identity, which I love to find out a little bit more what that means, at Oracle. And uh, his, uh, one of his responsibilities was to envision a future of contextual intelligence product. For those of you who's uh, not uh, aware, contextual targeting tools are actually NLP, which stands for Natural Language Processing, and machine learning ML solutions that help extrapolate what is taking place um, on a publisher's website. And this is valuable because when you can create this uh, text taxonomy um, that characterizes the pages of the content that they have based on an understanding of keywords as well as contextual relevance, it becomes really useful for, for marketers and company to really understand that the context they're in as well as the, um, the people, the identities and who's crafting those, uh, those content. And Ryan helped bridge this solution with ID-based targeting for that name new product to market as well. Ryan also uh, was just named the head of identity at a locker. And his role at a locker predominantly helps enterprises identify where machine-generated emails have been leveraged. And this is important because much of the ID-based marketing and advertising solution are predicted on email as a longitudinal identifier, which is a a concept that I don't even understand. So I'd love to actually understand a little bit more about that. And in the classroom at Regis, and uh, Ryan also spends a lot of time talking about emerging technology. And this fall, Ryan has planned to spend a lot of time discussing these formal topics and uh, in addition to seamless content creation opportunities that appear to come to product hunt every week. So without further ado, Ryan, welcome to the show. Thanks, Eve. It's really great to be here, and uh, thanks for having me. I'm I'm happy to help clarify some of the things in my background before we get started, if it's if it's helpful. No, that absolutely, yeah. So, um, what a good credential you have there, from Oracle now to Locker, um, as well as you know, understand that you teach at the Regis University at the is that the business school? So yes, the okay. the Anderson School of Business and Computing. Yes. Yeah. So is that also on the subject of uh, um, machine learning technology and uh, marketing application? So definitely marketing applications and machine learning and uh, AI, these types of things are are disruptive in, in the marketing and advertising space right now. So it is something that we bring to the digital marketing course to discuss with students so that they're aware of what's emerging and what's changing. These changes are you know, while it's very disruptive yeah. in the work in the workforce, right? Uh, if if we leverage, um, you know, older texts or even you know articles or or um, research from a couple of years ago, 
it's it's not really preparing uh, students for what the market is looking for um, in terms of how how do you leverage things like chat GPT? How do you think about using these things? And what's interesting is, um, you know, when you surround yourself with a bunch of young minds, they often come up with with differing applications and, and ways to use uh, <laughs> nascent technologies that you hadn't thought about yet. Um, yeah. And that just goes to, you know, goes to show just how quickly things are moving. Yeah, 100 percent. Yeah, absolutely. No, no, this is a, a huge topic. And, um, you know, I was just thinking being, when I was planning for the episode, I was thinking, which direction do we go into? Right. And uh, obviously, we definitely want to talk about the machine generated emails. You know, um, that's what you are uh, expert for. And uh, obviously, that you know, your current role is a locker. I'm sure that, you know, um, there's, uh, you know, implications on that. And also marketers need to be aware about, you know, um, the pros and cons about using machine to generate those emails content. Um, but, you know, really the first thing came to mind when we talk about artificial intelligence. And um, this is a few months ago, I was hosting a seminar and it was sponsored by IP Law Firm, actually. So I raised the question also about AI in the context of, you know, privacy and, um, you know, copyright laws, right? Because, you know, if you can actually replicate someone, um, obviously, if it's a historical figure, that's a different story. But what if it's someone who's alive today, right? We can bring in, say, I, I'm a big All Blacks fan, you know, in New Zealand, the football. And we can now, like, bring, you know, uh, a character, a player that everybody looks up, right, into the classroom, and a student can ask this, you know, you can even like recreate this uh, personality into using some sort of hologram technology and a student can interact with uh, their favorite player, right? In New Zealand, you have all blacks and then the, the queen now is the king, right? <laughs> so yep. this is what we're talking about. But, you know, when it comes to like a privacy copyright, who owns that, right? So really like to, you know, dive into the ethic and morality side of, you know, uh, the topic about the generative AI. Because um, at the end of the day that our listeners, you know, they are marketers out there that are using, trying to figure out using this AI, uh, apply that into their field, right? Um, we have already seen the rise of social media. There's tons of like a good, bad, and ugly component, right? Even like of uh, Silicon Valley, they come up with the, the uh, what was that? Uh, um, the documentary on Netflix and uh, talking about the social dilemma, right? That that was the documentary, right? So yes. you know, even them themselves, you know, turn the other way around. Say, hey, this thing, we need to be a little bit careful about that, right? How to create a a future for our future generation that is not so healthy, you know. So, uh, and then I like to, you know, um, dive into the cost and benefit of uh, machine generated uh, content. And they, most of our listener here is on the show. Um, they all were in the commercial field. So love to dive into that, you know, how they really can use the AI to, you know, achieve that cost benefit uh, result for the organization. But before we jump into that, I'm really curious, and um, how, how did you end up in this role, in this field, and you know, like uh, um, in generative AI? Yes. So, uh, so I got into the you know the realm of generative AI in a in a very accidental way. Okay. When I started my career, I was in outsourcing, and uh, you know, helped uh, launch a, a service desk for a startup in the health and wellness space, and then moved on to the analytic consulting practice. And it was in the analytic consulting practice that I started doing these, you know, small studies and learning from these consultants about how to do small studies, how to think about small studies. And that opened this door for me to end, end up at an agency at Omnicom Media Group. Uh, with their their tech agency was called Analect, and they had launched a business intelligence platform to help with the to help essentially own and operators of fast food chains go digital. So when you're an own and operator, you pay your franchise fees, and some of those franchise fees goes goes into your marketing budget. So being able to help these own and operators understand how 
that money was being spent um, in a way that they felt would be most effective for them or, or not. You know, there was a lot of disagreement uh, in, with these own and operators with how that money was being spent. And so it was to help with that maturation or that, you know, how do you, how do you go digital? Um, and, and so I did that for, for a while at the agency and then transitioned into a role where Omnicom announced this platform, a global targeting platform that's still around today. It's called Omni. And I was a product manager, uh, for, for the, for the data and identity solutions in that platform and helped deploy those globally. And while doing that, uh, this idea that Google was going to deprecate cookies became uh, very concerning to me um, because I was just de- I just deployed a platform that relied on the cookie infrastructure to right. target you know in some cases to target in the open web right. and so that led me to Oracle where I got to play with the contextual suite which you talked about before. Um, which is, you know, what I would say is like, if there's a yin yang in, in the targeting world, um, the, the yin part would be that ID based targeting. I know, you know, I, I, you, there's a cookie, there's a email, there's a phone number. There's these, these kind of like these, what I would say is like when you talk, when you're doing your intro, right? Like a, a, a phone number or an email would be like that longitudinal, this this I, this idea is probably going to be tied to you for a very long time. How often do you change your phone number? How gotcha. often do you change your email? How often do you change your address? Um, whereas that cookie, maybe like a shorter shorter window, maybe uh, depending on what browser was collected on, which is a much shorter window. Right. So the other side of that would be the contextual targeting, which is trying to capture the the headspace of the person. Right? If if you want to sell shoes, you might want to target content that's that's focused on exercise or on um being outdoors or uh you know things like that and so being able to capture both of those perspectives from a targeting from a from a how do i acquire new customers or bring current customers back um and so it was was very much in the weeds there um at at oracle and and you know the agency kind of helped introduce me to those to those concepts uh and and i didn't you know face value, I didn't realize when I knew I was going to be working with the contextual suite or, you know, contextual intelligence, which was formerly called Grape Shop before Oracle had acquired it, was that there was a ton of machine learning and natural language processing algorithms. Um, and these, you know, really brilliant people developing taxonomies to help the machine understand what is actually being said on this page, right? If I'm reading a web page about a world of Warcraft, is that web page about something that has to do with death and dismemberment and conflict, or right. is it a game? Right. And how do I delineate between those two things? Because as marketers and as advertisers, sometimes we don't want our brand associated with death, dismemberment, you know, those sorts of like dark things, but we might not care as much if we're, if we're advertising on a page that's associated with a game, Um, even though there's, there's a, there's some themes that kind of come together. Um, And so uh, now, now being at Locker, you know, in my role, head of identity, and what we think about is, is I'm, I'm really going to be focused on working with our partners and helping our partners understand how machine generated emails are going to impact, you know, and are, or will be impacting their uh, infrastructure in terms of how do they interact with their customer bases and how does, how does how they interact with their customer bases actually influence the broader ecosystem, the advertising ecosystem. Um, And, and again, that focus is on that longitudinal identifier which is right. email, which I know we'll get into a little bit later. Yeah, no, that that's uh, awesome. Yeah, thanks for that background. And uh, um, yeah, when it comes to AI, you know, not just the, um, I guess, the 
you know, what is right, what is wrong, you know, the ethic components, right? And at the moment that we have, I think most of marketers have probably somehow experimented and then try our chat GPT. If you have not, <laughs> why not? And, um, but, you know, I, I personally have done that as well. There's also, um, you know, accuracy issues still. And like you said, you know, like uh, how does the machine like learn that, you know, page um, when the content is about what of what of crop, which is a video game. But, you know, um, would that read that as a real historical stories? And um, the other the other day I was uh, searching for um, a guest, a panel guest, you know, for my nonprofit that I'm organizing a panel. And so I uh, basically asked the chat GPT to write me a small bio about this person. And uh, I, I didn't fact check chat GPT. So, and it came out, the paragraph is so well written and, you know, even diving to her history about her journey, become a pro tennis players and, um, and all the record, even talk about like how much she was earning. So um, I sent it to her and then she said, I wish that was me. (laughs) (laughs) So it actually was not her story whatsoever. And which, you know, gave me a shock. I was just like, oh my gosh, you know, how much can you trust this thing, right? So that component, obviously, you know, it's a big issue itself because, you know, if, if you can't trust it, it can become counterproductive. And us, you know, marketers are using, you know, this tool to, to try them to, you know, the design, the, the purpose was really to improve productivity, but ended up is actually costing not only more productivity issue, but integrity issue as well, right? So, yeah. So, you know, definitely there's, there's, you know, something that we should be mindful about. Um, but, you know, let's go back to the, um, the areas talking about ethics. And to start out with, I think we really need to define what really ethics and morality mean in the context of a generative uh, generative AI. And why do you think that these are important things, you know, that marketers should really consider when we are uh, looking at adopting generative AI? Totally. Yeah, th- this question, you know, makes me pose the, like just more of like a, a broader existential question is you know what kind of world do we want to live in um and when i think about diving into the specifics of ethics and morals for ai to me that means what are we what are the rules what is the taxonomy that we must create that's going to govern how we interact with the AI and how the AI interacts with us. And thankfully, it, you know, there's, there are in other disciplines, I mean, we've, we've seen it in, you know, at major companies, you know, you know, at, at ethicist groups, um, but you also see it in healthcare where there's bioethicists and there's a discipline that exists to help us govern and navigate these complicated questions because it does get complicated very, very quickly. And so for me, I'm not an ethicist. So I don't, I don't like to, I won't define, I I mean, to, to answer your question directly, I'm not going to answer your question directly, but what I do think it means is that the fields of the liberal arts of, of theology and of ethics and, and, you know, for the, for folks that did go to, uh, a small, smaller or medium-sized liberal arts school, they're, they have to take classes that focus on kind of, you know, how do I interact with nature? How does it, nature interact with me? What are, what are the rules? What is good? What is bad? You know, what did somebody say about this two or 3,000 years ago? Yeah. It, to be able to establish a cashew, a cashew street of this is, pedagogically how we are going to progress with this these machines and so like you already see some of this with chat gpt for example okay. where you can say chat gpt tell me a joke about uh you know jesus and it might right. go no i won't do that okay tell me a joke about buddha no i won't do that okay tell me a joke about moses 
okay, here's a joke about Moses. You know, so like you have this, you have over in, and this is all in real time, right? Where you can plug in these rules and you can hope that the machine is, is adhering to them. Um, But it's not perfect. We're, we're in a massive test phase, maybe one of the largest tests ever to take place, you know, in, in, in recent history where you have so many people playing with the same tool and getting varying answers. And at the end of the day, there has to be a group of people to help us govern what answers the the machine we're going to allow the machine to answer and what answers we're not in in convert in the same way as advertisers and as marketers right we have to set the rules for ourselves and for our organizations how are we going to operate with these nascent technologies and how and what are we going to accept from them with or without review um, kind of to the example yeah. that you had before, right? right? About that bio. You know, it's great when something else can do some of the work for you. Right. And it could look like PhD level work, right? Yeah. But really, it might be intern level work. And I think that as part of this, you know, this evolution, right? As we as we decide what the rules are going to be for ourselves, and as these companies either Either there's going to be AI cooperatives or, you know, we're just not quite there yet. I know there's some ethicists out there, but even, you know, some of like the famous ethicists that have, you know, that were that Google, you know, fired a couple of years ago, like they didn't have an ethics background. Mm. They were engineers. Yeah. And so I, I think there's just going to be a lot of movement um, in, in academia and, and that's going to bleed over into these technologies that uh that set somewhat exists today but there's there's still a lot of there's a lot of work left left to do yeah you know i bet you know i, I recall this uh, um that seminar that i ran uh, um sponsored by that ip law firm right yes um when i asked the question there was absolutely no answer and so from legal standpoint and you know it like you said it gets really complex and None of them has, you know, figured it out yet because uh, um, to what extent, right, do you use this uh, um, tool? And then when, in what context, you know, is starting to actually cross the, the boundary that is actually, you know, hurting someone, right? And so, you know, we already know that AI can um, generate a lot of uh, fake information as well. And uh, um, yeah, so there was... Uh, um, I think that, you know, there's one case that came out, which is, you know, pretty straightforward and talking about like those uh, art, artwork, right? Those creative visual being generated by AI. And they were the machine being trained on was using a few artists. I think it's actually from California, if I, I, I recall correctly. And they took the company to, to court. Because, you know, uh, there's, uh, um, you know, when the machine is uh, trained based on someone else's intellectual property, yet, you know, the intellectual property owner, um, they're not being compensated in any way uh, for the profit that, you know, or the future profit that this company is trying to build, you know, to, to, to leverage this um, technology on. Um, then it becomes really tricky, right? You know, how, how do you pursue that? And number one is being even identify this work based on someone else, this individual's work. That's the number one challenge, right? How do you prove that? You know, like in the, the court of law. And then, you know, um, where it becomes, you know, cross the line. Because some, some of the work we have certainly used, you know, I think copyright says that it's up to 100 years or something. Um, you know, in the in a book or in a, a certain reference, if you use someone else's word as over a hundred, if I recall correctly, you know, if it's over a hundred year old, then there's no no longer copyright issue, right? Because this person's already passed away. It's a public work, right? So yeah, you know, and in your field, and um, have you seen any example that you know um, there are ethical concerns um, that is you know uh, came from the generative AI? 
such as bias, privacy, and the transparency, like I, I mentioned. So, yeah, so I think there, uh, and, and I, what I would, uh, I kind of separate some of these things a little bit. So mm-hmm. when I think of uh, ethical concerns as it relates to, to bias, privacy, transparency, I think there's, um, I think that's its own thing. And then there's like, as an, as an, as a professor working with students, I think there's another dynamic as well. Um, what's, what's challenging with bias to pick on first is the algorithm knows what you fed it and it knows the rules that you feed it. Right. So if you say, you know, here's all this Monet, you know, look at all the Monet art and build me, you know, art, you know, new things, you know, depict a, a ship sinking in the ocean in the, in a, in a Monet, you know, something like that. Um, It's the, the the algorithm only knows Monet. So if you, if you said, you know, a different, like Picasso, the algorithm is not going to know it's going to give you something that looks like Monet. And, and it reminds me of this, um, you know, I used to listen to the Wharton radio on Sirius XM many years ago. And I remember uh, two hosts talking about, this uh, music service, like in the early 2000s and mid 2000s, there were all these, you know, nascent, you know, music services that were like, you know, have the robot or, you know, have the service. We'll tell you what you like based off of certain inputs. And with right. these two different people um, with two different backgrounds came to find and concluded together was that all of the music that they listened to through that platform was the same um, and that they started to like the same music. So was the platform, you know, driving, you know, was it, were they, they here, they thought they were being fed things that they liked. Meanwhile, the platform was just feeding them things that the platform had, didn't have anything extra. So, so when we think of like that example, that create, there's, there's a lot of downstream problems that you can have because the bias is only as good as the sample and you yep. should expect the sample to be biased. Uh, and then how are people interacting with that bias? And how does that, how does that change behavior based off of the inputs? This is where those rules that we kind of talked about before are really, really important because you should always expect bias. And the bias isn't like, I think when we think about bias or uh, you know, oftentimes it has more to do like in the national discussion that has more to do with like a, a prejudice or something. But in the right. case of AI, we're talking about uh, an information bias where it's only as good as the inputs. And and then on top of that, only as good as the rules that rein in or don't rein in those yeah. inputs. That's that second point around privacy is an interesting one. Because it's not that different from when we think about our privacy with social media or our privacy with Google. Uh, It reminds me of that book, Everybody Lies, right? Where they looked at all the search histories of all the people that use Google during the, was it the 2016 election, I think? And you have all of these kind of, you see all of these biases. But at the end of the day, I mean, the, the hypothesis behind that book is that um, people are always going to lie to you. And if you just go to the source where they're actually asking the questions, you can know more about them than you ever hoped. I mean, from a marketer perspective, right? You can go to a single source and go, oh, I know everything about this person. That makes all your segmentation easier, can make your creative easier. It can make your targeting easier, right? Where am I, the, the tactic that you're using to target all those things easier. So with, with these AI, AI solutions, we're starting to do what we do with Google, um, but in a different way. And the result that you get is also different. And so uh, everybody should be somewhat suspect of what they're putting in. And, and so, so far, some companies have put in, uh, contr- you know, please don't put company information into yeah. uh, these systems. There was a, I believe, a back-end um, uh, uh, vulnerability with ChatGPT where 
specific to OpenAI, where um, you know somebody could get access to questions, users, users and their questions. Um, those are, I mean, again, vulnerabilities. And then the third thing, which I think is the most important thing around the privacy question, is how much do you personally want to fuel or bias the future of the algorithm? Because we are feeding, even though there's already been all this data ingested, we are in real time feeding these algorithms. Um, And it's the intention is to make them better. But are there other ways that feeding the algorithm could come back uh, to hurt you? Uh, And just having that kind of top of mind. And then, and finally, that, that transparency layer. And this is an area where I do think there's a lot of opportunity. Um, and, and it's, and what I mean by that is there's been some discussion around, uh, algorithmic transparency. How did the computer come to the conclusion to give you the response? And that can be really challenging right. if, the computer doesn't have breadcrumbs to follow. Uh, this is where a lot of prior AI sorts of projects were shut down, right? Where the computer starts talking to another computer in a language that nobody understands. And you're kind of like, what is going on here? Right. We never taught it this language. We don't know, like, is it a real language? Is it not? Um, and so that's that's going to be, that's, that's an interesting area too, where I, I do my, my personal belief is that in the future social platform you know beyond ai right social platforms at a minimum should be providing algorithmic transparency why are you seeing the things that you're seeing mm-hmm. and and what's kind of tying you in your attention things like that beyond those ethical concerns i think the weaponization of ai for fraud manipulation those types of things like you know Recently, there was a man, a Danish man who killed himself after oh. spending a lot of time with a bot over a series of like six years. And, oh, wow. you know, he he discovered that he loved the bot more than his spouse and he took his life. And the bot, you know, said things that were manipulative around that, you know, pulling on those strings. Oh my and God. so, oh. you know, in the same way, like, Who's writing, you know, your, your samples only good, as good as it is, right? Like yeah. who's writing the rules on top. And then us at the very, t- you know, if there's, a, if there's two, if those are two layers, then there's us actually interacting with that ecosystem. Um, and there, there, there's a, there's a lot of concerns here. Um, we just need to, we just need to handle, make sure that, you know, right now, as these are nascent technologies, we need to make sure we're responsibly interacting with them. Wow, that, that that is bigger than I thought, and that's uh yeah no. When you think of it, yeah, it makes a uh, total sense, and because uh, come down to you know into the future, who who is training all these machine, right? Would actually be robot training robots, right? And so you know, and uh, I I did advertising degree back in the uh, my undergraduate, and you know, a hundred percent like you said, you know, us as advertisers. And, you know, are we actually driving the market or the market is driving us, right? So I go, and back those days, you know, I'm talking about 25 years ago when I was doing the degree, um, there's no such technology. So, but even then there was still, we, we use like a focus groups and we study, you know, our consumer psychologies. And uh, so it is intentional play. So now that, you know, it adds another layer of complication because the, um, like you said, you know, who's training this machine, right? And what data are we feeding them? What rules are they being uh, based on, right? And it can very quickly get to the point that like you know, the, 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 the sad example, the, the disaster example you mentioned become really manipulative. And um, so, you know, how do we even govern these things, right? So, um, what, what do you, how do you see that, you know, the field of generative uh, AI evolving the, the next, say, 10 years coming? And when, when it comes to ethic morality, and what role do you think that, you know, the regulator, policymaker, Congress, you know, should be shaping that evolution? I watched the, um, the testimonials and also the, the Congress uh, questioning of, uh, um, 
Mark Zuckerberg. And um, I don't, I don't even think I don't know that with a Congress policymaker, they have, uh, you know, they understand the capability because you know some of the question came out just like clearly. I don't think you guys get it, you know. So, so you know, this is really challenging. Is it's almost like you know, um, the blind is leading. <laughs> you know, those ones that actually knows what's going on, right? So, um, and then the, there's agenda comes in as well. Obviously, commercial side they have the agendas, and Congress's role, the lawmakers' role, is really trying to regulate certain practices so it doesn't really hurt a broader society right so what do you see that you know uh the regulators growing into the future and any tips for them really <laughs> yeah i i mean thankfully uh you're right when when you know mark zuckerberg was first in front of congress it was it was pretty embarrassing to see how u.s regulators understood the internet and social platforms. And in a way, where we are today as a society might might be because of that, right? You have, uh, you know, uh, epidemics of loneliness, epidemics of, of uh, friendlessness, yeah. uh, and, 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 su- and depression and suicide. And like all of these things are just shooting through the roof. Um, and part of this is because of this, this, idea of algorithmic transparency uh and 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 in the you know there's an article a few months ago about the what was it the shitification of tiktok i think but it was like the whole the premise of the article was was really talking about how you take good platforms and things and, the, and over time they just get really bad because of the commercial uh implications right yeah. uh you know i i want more people on facebook because I want more eyes on Facebook. Yeah. Uh, I want uh, to get everybody's email so that I can always contact them. Well, then all of our inboxes are filled. Um, and so, and in, in, in like, at least with like communications, you have the FTC uh, and, and they do a pretty, you know, they have standards and everybody's supposed to follow them, but it's hard for everybody to follow them. Uh, I think we're on the brink of of a of a regulatory revolution in in a way where uh, regulators now have more of a they have a better understanding of the social uh, media ecosystem. Right. They understand the threats of algorithms and how algorithms can kind of be manipulative, uh, right. whether it's for your attention or for propaganda purposes or whatever the the instances and so i think that we're going to see a lot of change here in terms of policy and my hope is that 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 policy drives better um behavior from and from enterprise um and from industry and in the meantime there's going to be a whole series of solutions out there that are going to be consumer protection focused that are going to advocate for the for the consumer when um when possible when the access is granted right think pre um cambridge analytica days when everybody could access and do whatever they wanted in facebook uh right. now facebook's more like a a walled garden i i think like with these ai especially like with open ai um with the with the AI, you know, sort of things that exist today, like I think there's going to be more uh, control. Um, And and we have a lot of policy that exists today that can help support. I mean, CCPA out of California, all these other privacy laws. These are these are steps in the right direction. But it's not enough. And then you have, you know, some radical plays. I believe Italy was one of the countries that said, hey, we're you know, open AI can't operate here unless you, um, you know, accommodate certain GDPR or other types of maybe older regu- regulatory policy. So, um, so it's going to, it's going to be interesting to watch. Um, oh, yeah, but I do sure. think it's yeah. prime. Yeah. yeah, for sure. And then you have the, the uh, com- complexity when every country making their own rules <laughs> and, and the internet is global, right? And uh, so, 
what do you do then um yeah no no it's gonna be fascinating to to look forward to what's going on coming up um do, do you know of any like specific case study example you know of, um that where there is a ethical dilemma that you counter when you work with generative ai and um how will this dilemma address you know just, just in your commercial work if you can talk about that and what lesson can we learn from them Yes. So I think the, um, you know, one of the, and, and this might be an ethical example um, that I'm very familiar with, which is, you know, do advertisers kind of back to like, do advertisers want to sponsor content that talks about death, dismemberment, things like that. And if the algorithm gets it wrong, you know, in those instances, the advertiser thinks they're buying one solution to target customers and instead they get a different, they're getting a different outcome. Um, And so I think like that's, that's a challenging thing, like doing as we're seeing in real time, right? I'm asking chat GPT to write me a bio about somebody. And sometimes that bio will look really, really good. And sometimes that bio is not going to look so good. And when we're talking about billions of web pages, how do you how do you quality that? Uh, how do you do it well? And I think that that's that's a challenging thing. And in you know when we getting more specific to like algorithmic transparency, like the Wall Street Journal, you know, did the the TikTok deep dive I think a year or two years ago, which was very good. I, I would definitely recommend. You know, as we talk about you know the ethics and morality of how these things operate, I think it's a great expose for how social media operates and then it can get more generic from there i think you know we're we're coming in the united states we'll start uh the next election cycle soon so how do deep fakes um you know influence uh consumer you know a voter behavior um in a way that's maybe similar or different to how in the past you know uh you know i don't know that we would call it generative AI in the way that we understand it, but a forms of generative AI where, um, you know, you know who potential voters are and you create content for them. The machine creates content for them. And maybe that content, and this is, I think, um, shown off very well in the Brexit movie with Benedict Cumberbatch, but uh, where it's like, oh, this is, this is a thing that's getting traction with voters Right. So like from that marketer perspective, hey, I'm getting traction. I'm changing minds like we're doing a, You know, we're we're doing what we've been paid to do. But then the outcome of well, some of the things that are being said aren't real or a lot of the things that are being said aren't real. So right. being able to balance those things, I think, is is really challenging at at scale um, yeah. and whether it's an election cycle or, um, you know, or you're you know, targeting Web pages. Yeah. Uh, and you think you're buying one thing and you might be getting something else. Uh, I think it's, these are, these are going to be areas where we have to be really careful. Yeah, um, absolutely. You know, like the, that example I use with the tennis players bio, right. And um, the, whose fault is it, right? Had I lucky that the, the what ChatGPT has uh, spit out was actually a really, really praising her. Right. Um, but it's not true. None of that is factual. And, uh, um, and there was check balances. I sent it to her for approval, obviously, before I, you know, send this out through a press release and then millions of people can see, right? And in that case, it's almost a little bit like, you know, um, the gun debates, right? For example, you know, are, are the gun manufacturers, you know, should they be held responsible, right? And, uh, we know that the gun industry, they spend tons of money lobbying Congress as well. And it could happen, absolutely happen, you know, in this industry as well, right? And then, so the law, if it's not quite there, um, you know, in the case of Facebook, we know that there's a lawsuit of, you know, they, they agree to pay out $750 million for U.S., you know, um, U.S.-based Facebook user, right? And during, you know, if they are an active user during a certain period amount of time. But in that particular case, you know, Facebook is say we did nothing wrong. Right. So legally, you know, there's there's actually nothing wrong, but we will honor the payouts, you know. So it gets really tricky, you know, the when it comes to you know the the fine line 
what is legal, what is not legal, what is, you know, ethical, not ethical, and do we self-regulate, and do we actually, you know, trying to lobby citizens, we can lobby as well, like for the government to actually implement laws that can, you know, create a, um, a society where there is less manipulation. How about it? How about you go? The balance with the freedom of speech and all of that, right? Well, yeah, it, it's going to be a nightmare, I think, for so, a lot of the lawmakers. So it's so hard and it's, it's not easy. And, and, you know, in the, uh, I think the, uh, the gun policy debate is, a, is an interesting one because, uh, you know, you think of the amount of money that tech companies from Silicon Valley have spent in Washington over the last couple of decades. I mean, we're, yeah. we're not talking about small amounts and the flip side of this is the, is the auto manufacturer debate, which is, uh, you underregulate so that innovation can take place, right. um, and and because if you overregulate, right, you might not get certain features or things because uh, companies are cons- you know they'll want to be conservative and they won't want to um, you know flirt with the fringes of of potentially getting a fine, um, yeah. and and this is where it's interesting where the the privacy stuff might weigh here where it might um, it might wane on some of the innovative elements uh with with generative ai but um but yeah there's still going to be uh an opportunity for for improvement and and as we're seeing like the center for humane technology you talked about the um the social dilemma on on uh netflix dr jeffrey uh hinton hinton from google just quit i mean He's right. been working on neural network neural networks for a long time, and uh, now he's he's not working in big tech anymore because he wants to talk about how uh, concerning it is. And maybe this is an Oppenheimer moment um, right. you know, in in the field, uh, but it is going to be very fascinating to see uh, see what happens next. And and I li- think your copyright um, example is is it yet another example where we saw with social media, right? Mm-hmm. Where, Hey, you need to pay, you need to pay us as publishers to put our content in your platform. If you're going to curate our content. Uh, and, and, so, and so some, I think there were some laws in like Australia or other places where it's like, Hey, you can't get news and so with certain, you know, uh, tech providers because it was ruled like, yeah, this isn't yours to share for free. Right, um, right. And, and so maybe some of that stuff's been, you know, corrected with the rise of the paywall or, you know, the, the future of, of advertising, you know, not relying on as much on cookies and things like that, um, where there are some t- technical protections are sort of built in. But at the end of the day, how do we know that the generative AI isn't stealing somebody else's intellectual property Exactly. And giving it to us, you know, it's just, we don't know. Yeah, it, it's so hard. And it reminded me of Aaron Schwartz and, um, you know, the, the Internet Boys and documentary. Obviously, that's a really sad ending, right? And um, so during the 2012, I think he was championing, he became an activist and then really uh, on the, the bill stop out, right? And that was intent to... Um, to govern the information, access of information, right? And that's an interesting one as well, like, because uh, um, from Aaron's uh, viewpoint that all information should be freely accessible because it has a lot, you know, uh, benefit for humanity. And, you know, in some uh, application, absolutely it's true, you know, like uh, um, there's so many journal articles, you know, um, you have to pay company like LexisNexis, for example, tons of money to be able to access that information. And what Aaron, I, you know, I watched that documentary. Apparently that is some of these publishers, they have engaging manipulative practice as well. And this is not even talking about, you know, AI technology. This is human, you know, intentionally. Um, you know, manipulating information, you know, to drive a different outcome, right? In law, in medical, you know, practice, that can come with significant complica- uh, implication, right? Like um, in the, I think in the case, you know, when he talked about like freeing uh, the in- internet, right? 
And there was a kid actually in Australia and uh, actually using some of those uh, um, uh, medical journal articles and developed a uh, um, cancer cure. And so that is amazing, obviously, from humanity point of view, you know, to be able to, uh, why do, why are we guarding this information and only allow people who has, you know, uh, uh, finance capability to access them, right? When, you know, there might be, you know, another genius brand out there can leverage all this research work, someone already done, and then, you know, improve on that, right? So so that that really is um, is a tricky balance. And so... What do you see, you know, going from here with with, with uh, um, the ethical concern that we know, you know, and uh, balancing all these? What would be a good approach? And she, you know, should we actually uh, having computer scientists, uh, ethicists, and um, policymaker every other sector come together to really have a big debate and figure out what would be a good way to go forward? Really. Yeah, I think uh, I think bioethics is is the model here, and um, and I do I think that there's there's definitely a growing number of uh, AI evangelist types, people doing research, people getting fired for doing research, um, right? That that are they're going to be some of the computer scientists and maybe even ethicists um, that are actively lobbying policymakers. Uh, And that's where like that center for humane technology, I think really is going to play a major role, but you know, the other, in in the same way we've seen data, you know, hospitals with a chief ethicist, right. Chief bioethicist. That's true. Um, in the same way GDPR required privacy officers, um, you know, we might see the rise of a new C-suite title here um, right. and one that can interact with scientists and ethicists and policymakers um, that are outside of that organization. Yeah. Uh, because this is the, t- like, not everybody is equipped to ask the questions and do the full pedagogy. What is, what does this mean when we enable this? What are the downstream outcomes? And I, and, and there might even be like ethics as a service, like types of technologies that will convey certain ethical traditions. I mean, um, you know, the, the, the history and, and background of ethics, right. Uh, is is different depending on where you were raised, what intellectual yeah, tradition true. you you belong to, um, and so and I don't think that I don't think that there's going to be one. I think that there's going to be, you know, for example, like in the medical space, for example, right? You have your Catholic hospital ethicist, and then you might have like a a more secular hospital ethicist, and they're they're probably going to agree on a lot of things standard things but then you get down to very specific health needs and one might say hey yeah we don't do those procedures and another might say we don't do those procedures like there's there's those rules and and i think that we we're just we're not so we're not there we don't have those those frameworks that we have these you know the center for humane technology but we don't have all of those things where um you know, consumers can have choice. Yeah. I want to opt to use uh, AI systems that fall in line with, you know, these particular, you know, ethical traditions uh, or, you know, what have you, like, there's not a warning label. There's not, that just, we're just not there. And I think we're going to get there. I think in the next 10 years, for sure. Right. Um, generative AI might help us get there faster. Uh, entirely possible there's an irony there i don't know that you know it will be doing it by itself i think there's going to be a lot of uh peer review per se if you know i guess this issue really you know the the all the factors involved is you know it's really bigger than ben hurt and um you know and then like you said biases is everywhere and um, when you run, you know, such an ethical 
forum even who is running it you know the the person itself you know has bias and like you said the ai has bias as well because it's based on the training right so in that context you know um sometimes you do have blind sight about the broader issue that could come to service when it comes to ethics and like you know and then at another level is you know it, it's different to different cultures different different contexts again right so yeah you know i think uh i really look forward for the next 10 years and definitely gonna elevate this topic continuously because it's such an important one um you know really affect the, um our future gen- generation the world they're living right now i know that we have spent a lot of time on ethics and let, let's dive into talk about you know what you're currently doing about machine generated emails um so I, I want to understand that you know uh from your viewpoint what what do you think some of the advantage you know of using machine generated uh, the uh the email and contrarily as well you know what are some of the the, the downside for it yeah I think it depends on the stakeholder. Okay. So if, if there's, you know, three stakeholders that I can think of, we'll say one is like consumers, uh, next would be, uh, companies, uh, B2B players. And then the third, like an ecosystem, I'd break it into yeah. that, that those groups from a consumer perspective, there's lots of advantages to using, um, a machine created, a machine generated email. Right. Um, some of the, and, and, and you see them with um, the, you know, Apple hide my email, Firefox relay. Um, there's a lot of solutions in the market that it's an integrated experience where you want to sign up for Netflix and you're prompted, uh, you know, here's a, here's an email that we just created. That's unique to you that will forward everything from this, you know, um, from Netflix to you, we'll create the password for you. So you don't have to, you know, it's, it's seamless. Um, and you can interact with that provider, um, with the, with those things. And it creates this, uh, this privacy that most consumers feel like they don't have. They feel like they give you an email and you're just going to, you're going to bombard them. Um, and so, and, and even like in the B2B space realm, right? Like when we're shopping for new technologies or things and we sign up for a vendor and then we get bombarded with hundred emails in the first two days, this is, this has just a very disruptive effect on, uh, on a buyer, right? Where it's supposed to be helpful, but it, it ultimately becomes hurtful. Right. Now, Um, there's, you know, when we, when we cast aside, like more of these, uh, these hide my email, like the Apple hide my email, like there's been email machine generated emails for a long time. And oftentimes from a consumer perspective, um, they can be used for fraud. Uh, I want to sign up for a 30 day trial or a seven day trial. I get my seven days and then I create a new email and, and rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat. Um, so, so from a, from a consumer perspective, it, it can be really, you know, uh, con- convenient in a, in a sense um, to remain anonymous and take advantage sometimes of promotional types of opportunities. Some of the drawbacks for consumers is, you know, what is my email? What if I want to log on somewhere else? What is my password? How do I reset? What? What if I want to, um, you know, what if I, what if I want to, what if I signed up for something, you know, I want to cancel it and my phone was stolen and I don't yeah. have yeah. access to those things anymore. And this is where company I work for Locker plays a role with the Locker Mail uh, product, which enables consumers to sign up for things with, you know, their mm-hmm. Locker email and enables them to tailor what types of messages they want to see from big brands. Wow. Um, it allows them to customize, you know, I only want to see 50% off and above. I only want, you know, benefits of a, of maybe a burner, you know, an email that you can (laughs) just burn, um, and with, without the downsides. Right. And so, uh, so, so from a, from a consumer perspective, this is a growing problem. Our inboxes 
I feel like every year my inbox just gets more and more cluttered. I'm yeah. sure you might feel the same way. <laughs> I have um, one email address just to collect the information that I don't necessarily want to see. There you go. And there's and that and that's like and great, but it's also unwieldy, right? Yeah. It's like how many email addresses do you have to have? Yeah. From a company or B2B marketer perspective, uh, or a publisher perspective, there's a lot more problems created than there are than there really are advantages. So um, think about your you're spending money on a consent management platform, uh, but you're you know twenty percent of all your customers are using uh, credentials that are machine generated. Hmm. You, you know, it's like, it's like a duplicative privacy, you know, it's like, a, it's like a privacy overkill. Um, yeah. And, uh, and so that's, that's not really, that's not really useful. And what if you want to communicate with those customers and other channels, um, say LinkedIn or, um, or somewhere else, you know, those, those emails are not going, you know, a, a percentage of those emails are not going to be useful. Um, they're going to actually be, um, they're going to make it seem like you have, you know, a million people you're going to be able to target when really you have 800,000. Um, so, so that's, that's a challenge, right? Cause you, it looks one way, but in reality, it's another way. And there's a lot of other, uh, you know, technologies in the email space right now that, you know, make it seem like all of your emails are, you know, your your open rates are through the roof. Well, Apple opens every email for you, at least from a <laughs> from a reporting perspective. It looks like That's every right. email has been opened. So, so this is really challenging for 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 marketers right. um, and for uh, you know companies that have a deliberate first party data strategy. Yeah. When we take a step back from those two groups, right, industry and consumers, when we look at the ecosystem. Uh, it gets back to what we were talking about before um, with identity, specifically these longitudinal identifiers, email being a longitudinal ident- identifier, and how in the advertising space today, while there are more contextual like solutions that are oriented for a cookie list, you know, when Google eventually deprecates cookies. Um, and, you know, Google's talking about their topics API and they have some solutions. The alternate option is would be to have an identity space that um, that may, companies can rely on for targeting their customers or for, you know, for for B2B targeting. So uh, that that ecosystem right now, the ID based retargeting and targeting ecosystem is based on uh, emails. Emails are the foundation for that ecosystem. And so if, you know, a growing percentage of emails are machine generated, then that actually kneecaps that future solution um, and makes and is going to bring down uh, the addressability, which is already a concern. Ever, you know, in the ad tech space, a lot of companies and a lot of experts are always like, hey, you know, yeah, you're going to have this one ident- you know, alternate ID, this other alternate ID, and this other alternate ID, but you're probably going to have to use all three because there isn't going to be enough scale. And um, the identity locker ecos, you know, uh, product through Locker is actually oriented to help uh, companies that have a first-party data strategy uh, get an email and, and make sure that that email is who we say who they say it is and give the option um, to you know SSO through the you know if you're a locker mail user to SSO in. So um right. th- but this is a you know this is a complex thing that you know in technologies that were created thinking that the solution was going to be one way and um now that with these and it's all under the guise of privacy which is good right people should have choice People should be able to opt in or opt out, but it needs to be sustainable too uh, for consumers and it needs to be sustainable for the industry, right? Because if we spend, we we think we have so many customers, but it's actually smaller because 
we don't know who a certain percentage are, like, what is that going to do for our, our marketing spend? What does that do for the, for the cost of our product? At the end of the day, it might drive the cost of our products up because uh, we're not, our, our acquisition cost is too high. Yeah. You know, it's going up because we don't know who our customers are. So yeah, does that, does that help? I know I covered like those three areas. No, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much for that. And um, Ryan, uh, we haven't spoke a lot about the ethic and, you know, you gave us so much to think about. And uh, when we, when we as marketers, you know, using generative AIs and uh, um, to create content, uh, we really need to be mindful about the uh, ethical components of what we're doing that can impact so many, so many people. So uh keep talking about that. I think that's so important. But um we're kind of running out of time today for today's episode. Um, but I still love to actually tap into your knowledge and experience, talk further about the costs and benefits of using machine-generated content. Would you be happy to come back to our shows and uh we further dive into that? Um, I think that we can spend another probably 20, 30 minutes on that, and that would be really insightful for our audience. Would love to, Eve. Thank you so much. No, that's great. And thank you for talking about Locker, um, um, user general, uh, user control, the email system. Um, I'll definitely look into that. So, uh, anyone's interested in that can go on to Locker Mails, that's L-O-C-K-R mail.com. So I certainly go into looking to that. Uh, um, but I'd love to, you know, uh, dive further into that subjects, you know, at our next show. So um, as always, thank you to our listener for tuning in. I'm your host, Eve Chen. So we will welcome Ryan back to another episode to talk about generative AI generated content. So this is another episode of Let's Talk Revenue Marketing. And I look forward to having you tuning in again. We'll talk AI for the next episode too. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thanks for joining us on Let's Talk Revenue Marketing. Don't stop now, there's more to explore. Dive into our other captivating episodes where we uncover revenue-boosting strategies, insider secrets, and inspiring success stories. Get ready to unleash your marketing potential and stay ahead of the game. Keep listening and enjoy the next episode.